Hey, engine professionals, machinists, and enthusiasts, welcome to the Engine Professional Podcast. We're back for another edition of the Engine Professional Podcast. My name is Steve Fox. I'm here with my co-host, Chuck Lynch. Happy New Year, Chuck. Happy New Year, Steve. You and I have been fortunate to uh, travel quite a bit together it, here in the past few months. Yes, we have. <laughs> it's been uh, crazy. Uh, I think the last, before the last episode, we we were off to PRI. So PRI was great this year. I thought, um, let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, we started the week off for AERA with our EPIC conference, our Engine Professional Industry Conference, where we had four speakers, and I thought it was very well attended. You know, well attended, and the buzz has been great about it. Um, some of the other associations we have were um, speaking highly of it. It was a great time, great presentations, great everything about it was great. You know, just the, the conversations between ed or break periods and stuff. It was all good. Yeah, it was. It was great to kind of get back to something similar to an event that happened before PRI in the past. Um, like you said, the speakers were, were outstanding. And without them and the sponsors that we had, as well as the attendees, why uh, that event would have never happened without them. Yeah. So I think you guys got the wheels rolling on trying to get it um, planned for this coming year, right? So, Yeah, we've been in discussions trying to get that uh, all finalized and uh, got some good ideas for speakers. So looking forward to uh, having that event again. Good deal. And then it rolled into the show. Uh, the show was, I thought, very well attended. Uh, might have been a little less than normal, but I think the quality of people were way better than they had been in the past. Yeah, a little bit of the things, you know, got to be a member and, and payment and stuff. So probably a little deterrent for some tire kickers. And I know people want to check things out, but, you know, when you're trying to do business and if someone walks up to your booth and he's a member and somebody is just curious and they want to know if you sell engines, you know, when we, for us, like we have data, we don't sell engines, we have data and so forth. You know, that's better for the membership because they don't have that stuff to deal with. I think that was good. I think Machinery Row, I think everybody was saying that they had great, great attendance in some of the other areas. It was different results, but I think if you were in Machinery Row, you were, you were happy with the, the turnout. Yeah, the whole show was buzzing. Um, the town was buzzing. Uh, the restaurants were busy, so there were a lot of people there, and I think everybody had a good time. And, and of course, that brought us to our party on Friday night, the Engine Professional VIP party, which, uh, as always, was was great and heard a lot of good comments about that as well. Yeah, that's turned into something, hasn't oh, it? Man. You know, it's <laughs> like you, now, I mean, you, you have to push people out the door because PRI is going to run us right. off. And, uh, you know, I remember when that wasn't the case. And, uh, and now, I mean, I think some people, I see the buzz a little bit in, in – uh, Facebook posts and messages and stuff where people will like, oh, see you at that party and, you know, and then we'll get together for dinner from there. And yeah, it's turned into quite the event. 
Yeah, it's kind of funny, like leading up to PRI, people will start calling, hey, you doing that party again? <laughs> it's become an annual <laughs> event for everybody. <laughs> yeah, it's expected. It's definitely expected. <laughs> and then on Saturday, we gave away our uh, 565 cubic inch big block uh, that Jeff Baldwin of Baldwin Racing Engines built, uh, put it on the dyno. And we figure it probably would have made, it made about 1300 I think. We figured it would have been up around the 1500 range uh, if we were to really, really step on it. Pretty powerful engine to be given away to somebody. Heck yeah. Yeah, nice conservative tune. Yeah, I think it'll live anywhere and and uh, had some happy campers to won that, We right? did. <laughs> uh, a young lady named Amy Belke won it from Florida. And it was, she was, it was funny because we drew the ticket and then they come around the corner and asked, did you do the drawing yet? Did you do the drawing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some, uh, a young lady named Amy Belke wanted. She goes, well, that's me. <laughs> so it was kind of, it was kind of fun um, to have them there. Uh, took a lot of photos. And then the next week uh, they were going up to the dome race that they had in St. Louis. So they just stopped by Jeff's facility and picked it up and drove it home. So that was, yeah, that that's. Was, that worked it out worked well. It worked out very well. Everybody uh, <laughs> saved on a little bit of shipping, and uh, they were very, very happy. So uh, Amy and her husband are supposed to keep us posted on what they're going to do with it. So looking forward to hearing what they say. Yeah, that's that's always exciting when you have um, someone who's truly interested in in winning that. Because, you know, a lot of people, you know, this, hey, it's a raffle. I'm going to enter. I've been there, done that myself. Yep. But, you know, when when you're a racer, that's that's what you want to do, you know, into hot rods and so forth. That's really cool. Makes you feel good. Both sides. Feel Absolutely. Really and all those proceeds benefited our engine rebuilders education foundation, uh, which helps training individuals looking for uh, any kind of advancement in the engine building industry. So good cause for everything. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we have a lot of people giving of their time materials efforts. I mean, it's such a, it's it's a big outreach. Yeah. It's a lot of giving. And on that note, without all those sponsors and, and Jeff's Baldwin's team and and everybody that helped fill out tickets in the booth, why without all them that would have never happened. So hats off to everybody that that helped make that a huge success. And that brings us up to a show we just did a couple of weeks ago, which was the HDAW show, the heavy duty aftermarket week. And overall the show was good. Travel, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> that is a fact, Steve. Man, uh, commercial rail travel can be quite painful anymore. Yeah, it, but the but the show was yeah, it was show great. was good. Show was good. Got a couple new members out of it. Talked to a lot of people, which is one of the main reasons why this. Uh, podcast is a little bit late this month because uh, we were trying to get some information while we were there because the topic we're going to be talking about is cylinder liners. And with those heavy duty parts manufacturers there, we thought that would be great to kind of get some insight from them on what information we could provide to the listeners. Yeah. So, you know, the heavy duty auto week, um, you know, quite fitting, right? So we're talking your uh, class eight and so forth and up, um, is the primary target market. Uh, heavy duty has got a little bit of a strange connotation anymore. Cause you can have some real 
small engines in applications that do heavy duty work. So, but in, anyway, a lot of the stuff is class eight and greater driven. Uh, years ago, the ADS used to have their own show and now they're together and they in, in this program. And so you see a lot of people from the diesel fuel injection service world. And then again, the over the road truck and mining and industrial and stuff. So it was good. And, and like you said, um, having the opportunity to engage with those folks, but um, they're not so engaged in like say SEMA or PRI. So yeah, it was definitely good. Um, and we got to go and interview and get some information and, and uh, kind of lead us off on, on the topic of sleeves and dry liners and wet liners. So, and kind of where they're, where they're used, what they mean, you know, some of it's nomenclature and some of it's details. Yeah. And we get quite a few calls here on the tech line, um, especially in the heavy duty side about counter bores and liners and seals of liners and, you know, what, what causes of what, what, what we should do to correct all those issues. So, um, and I guess, you know, probably maybe Chuck explain a little bit the difference between a dry liner and a wet liner, which we all know, but Hey, there might be some listeners out there that may not know. Yeah. So I guess the, you know, the easy thing to start with. So a sleeve versus a, a, a dry liner, because there are, there are blocks that have dry liner that there's a parent bore, there's a counter bore, there's a flange area and, but it's not going into the cooling system. So there's no packing ring or anything of that nature that's going to be on that sleeve. So it, in most instances, they have very minimal press fit to, you know, we call it like a slip fit. So you press it in and then what retains it is the clamp force of the head gasket coming down onto that flange to keep it positioned. And then when you get into sleeves, and again, it's it's jargon, right? Mm -hmm. Jargon can confuse so many things, even across the U.S., you know. Oh, it's yeah. like if you're in this, this demographic, uh, you know, the jargon is different than other parts of the country. So that makes a little bit. But like repair sleeves, they're going to be something that you do that might support fixing a dry liner application a wet liner application or something that never had a sleeve or a liner. If we talk about a sleeve or repair sleeve, say if you board beyond max overboard and I'm going to return the thing to standard bore, well, I might use a sleeve. If I had a crack in the cylinder, but it's not too bad of a crack or a hole in a cylinder, you know, maybe you broke a, a, a piston you know, wrist pin come out or something like that. And we can salvage castings by putting sleeves in. Again, it's going to be a press fit sleeve. Now, in, in those instances, um, what you want to do, if, I gonna, if I'm going to put a repair sleeve in a block and it doesn't have a flange, I need to make sure I put a shelf at the bottom. Um, without that step or shelf in the bottom, the head gasket will actually shove that thing all the way through and into the crankcase. So if you think about whether it's an automotive, small block Chevy, for instance, mm -hmm. so they have 17 head bolts and they got about 7,500 pounds of clamp force each. So you take all of that clamp force, say you got 10 of the head bolts, that's, you know, 
75,000 pounds of clamp force that's kind of in a in a very regional area right around that that combustion opening in the gasket well that's just going to shove that sleeve down it doesn't matter if you've got 3000s press fit or 6000s press fit which ideally you're going to want like one and a half to three on a say a four inch sleeve or something like that but you know it'll just shove that thing right into the bore if you don't have any holes in the block or cracks an ideal thing to do would be to put a straight through sleeve that has a flange on it then that way you can make sure that your gasket doesn't kind of go on the sleeve off the sleeve on the sleeve they don't like those transitions so much so for a, a better quality seal area and to help your head gasket live um, that's going to be something that you want to do you you hear this often again i'm going to go back to jargon right You'll have folks that say, oh, that's a steel block or a steel head through a cast iron. So it's just jargon. But just to clarify things a little bit, there are steel sleeves. There's like chrome plated steel sleeve Perkins, um, Fiat. So, you know, there's probably a lot more applications than I even realize, but there are steel sleeves. And that really dictates the ring choice and, and the piston choice and things of that nature. But by and large, the stuff is going to be a cast iron sleeve. Uh, when we talk about our folks in the performance world that do uh, the sleeves like Darton, LA sleeve, Powerbore, and so forth. Now, they offer some materials. You get compacted graphite. Um, it's pretty common in engine blocks today. But in cylinder sleeves, it's very similar. And you'll hear them talk about ductile sleeves. So... That's something that uh, that you want to consider. What's your application? You know, if it's a, a cast iron small block Chevy, you may not need that ductile sleeve because the material of the block's pretty soft too. But as you get into the diesels, like six O's and six fours, is really common to sleeve those. The Duramax, well, they're a higher hardness iron, and many of those are compacted graphite. So then you might want to choose use something in in the material grade of the uh, ductile iron i think we've kind of beat that one up you got any thoughts on steve you got any questions you want to throw out there for the for the sleeves no not really i was just gonna you kind of touched on it i was gonna say you know do you have a shelf at the bottom do you have a flange at the top uh both of those are pretty common uses i guess so but that's probably the biggest thing is just to make sure that you've got some support on the bottom of that sleeve when you're when you install it into a non-sleeved block. Right, right, yeah. That's uh, because we know that we've seen the blocks, you know, come into our shops in the past where someone didn't put a shelf or we'll take calls now. Hey, can I spot weld that thing? Um, you know, can I put a pin under it or whatever? Because, you know, it dropped. Now I'm gonna try to have to fix this thing. What things can I do to, to salvage that? And so I guess going on that, I mean, just a, a couple spot welds, I wouldn't wouldn't trust that. Again, you you might be applying 100,000 pounds of clamping force up on that. So at the bottom of that sleeve, you got a little taper on the ID and you got a little taper on the OD. So your point load is really, really high. So you may just push that right through with that clamp force you're getting from the head gasket. So 
if you weld it, you're probably going to have to do quite a few places. And then what other distortion do you cause? Um, the honing machine's not going to like that. No, not at all. <laughs> Hard weld, soft sleeve. Um, that's not going to be um, pleasant, but that's just something to consider. Dimensionally, how far down or how far up from the bottom of the bore should that ledge be and how much lead should be there, if that makes sense. Yeah, so that's a real challenge. Now, some of the modern blocks that have like the tails that hang out of the bottom of the cylinder and you don't have the main webbing, that bulkhead disrupting it, it's pretty easy. You can say, okay, I want to be up from that area, say a quarter inch. Um, another deciding factor should be how far the piston comes out of the bottom. So say if the bore is already 40 over and you sleeve it back to standard and the piston comes out a bunch and then I'm up another quarter, well, maybe my max size point on the piston, because uh, you know some of the stroker stuff, you see it pulls the, you see the wrist pin when it comes out of the bottom of the stroke. So it's really rocking over. So you got to consider how sharp all of that is at the very bottom of the sleeve, you know, coming out. If that piston really rocks over, it'll start to, chew the skirts off of the piston and they'll knock or you'll get knock anyway, you know, unseat the rings that may pump oil. So you, you kind of have to probably mock something up if it's the first time you've ever looked at this application and say, okay, just how far can I go down? You, you want it as deep as possible, honestly, but you know, you got to consider, you don't want to just blow that bottom out. And in a situation like that, Chuck, then it's probably better to go to a flange type sleeve and cut a little counter bore in there. Absolutely. Again, you know, kind of if you can use a flange liner because you don't have cracks and you don't have holes in the cylinders, because if you just put a flange liner on, a lot of times they'll leak behind that and there's nothing to stop it straight to the crankcase, right? But if you can use a flange liner, then so many of these things are. Just, no longer a concern, right? Is it going to scuff the piston skirt? Do I have it deep enough? What not? If I got a flange liner and you come bore all the way through and you make it to the existing uh, bottom of the bore, you're in good shape. It's just not always, not always possibility. So, but so uh, installing the installing those repair sleeves, any kind of uh, Loctite or anything that guys should put on the outside of those things, or. So if you're sleeving and, and you know that you had a crack or um, a hole, definitely you want to seal, um, depending on the amount of interference fit, because you know, there's, and I'll throw out some numbers just because, uh, and you can look up cross-references, but say Loctite, they make a 609, which is a low viscosity, so it wicks, and you could just about put it on on the top of the sleeve and it'd find its way through <laughs> yeah. the press fit. You know, it's super, super thin. And then if you've got, you know, more things you're kind of concerned about, you got 620. Um, that's the, probably the most common stuff that folks would use. It's a medium viscosity and it'll seal off leak paths and so forth. You probably, you still want to limit what you have for the size of the hole, how close a crack would run to the end. Because if the if you have a crack that goes right up to the gasket deck surface, a lot of times they'll tee off, and then it's you know when you put the sleeve in there, you have interference fit, so you push that away and you create kind of an air gap between the the parent bore and the sleeve. Air is an insulator, 
you know, when you look at double pane windows, you got some kind of gas or something between, or you got air between. That's an insulator. So you can have hot spots and cylinders because the sleeve isn't really touching the block. So those are things to kind of consider. So if, if a hole is, or a, a block's got a good significant amount of damage, you definitely want to consider that. But yeah, you should use a, a sealant um, to help block any leak paths. Um, again, a lot of stuff, you know, if you're three inch to, to a four inch sleeve, which is the most common stuff we're going to see, you know, half to one and a half interference fit is kind of what I like. You have a ton of surface area. You know, if you're putting a valve seat in three sixteens tall, quarter inch tall, you put six to eight thousandths on aluminum, you know, four to six thousandths on cast iron because you don't have all that surface area in contact. Plus you have huge disparity in heat that it sees. But on a, on a cylinder sleeve, that's a ton of contact area. So you don't need big, huge press fit numbers like you would need on a, on a valve seat. So installing those, most guys probably, I would think, would use like a press probably to install something like that instead of the old, yeah, uh, that's... <laughs> let me get a four by six and a hammer here and start pounding away. But Yeah, we know that happens. Um, ideally, if you can press them in, I mean, especially if you're using anaerobic sealant on the sleeve and you go to drive it in and you're beating it in with a hammer. Okay, you, you stopped. It kind of sets up something you shear. So stop, move, shear, stop, move, shear. That's not ideal. So, I mean, if you can get it in a press and give it in one fell swoop and get it moved and seated, that's ideal. Another thing, if you're going to put a sleeve in, is to to deal with creep. You know, you, you're pressing something Would in you the call hole. Me? You're distorting. <laughs> <laughs> That distortion to kind of help deal with that, if you can throw a torque plate on and put that on top of that sleeve, and that way you know that it's seated because oftentimes people will say, well, my sleeve dropped on me. Again, you can kind of have creep. You have distortion around the head bolt holes and whatnot, and then you mill it and it looks nice and flat, but if you apply thousands of pounds of clamp force or surface finish in that step area, surface finish on the wall, it probably wasn't fully down anyway. And many times when you you bore you kind of extrude material anyway if you know because the cutting tools aren't they're they're more fracturing and chipping when it's cast iron so you get some movement there too so if you bore it and then top the sleeve and then put put a plate on it and then torque it that's going to be your best results um you can get by without it but we know that's a level 10 to level one. Hey, I'm, I'm going to put that plate on there and I'm going to torque it in position. Okay. Now let's move on to a little bit of these wet liners. Uh, talk about them a little bit because those are typically used in, I'll say your John Deere's and, and those types of applications. And those are really meant for a serviceable item, I would call it. Right. Right. So just something I wanted to, uh, to mention, so we've got this thing that we monitor on our side when we're updating specs. We kind of track it, how often folks are looking at uh, at service specs. And in the past month, we've had more members to look at the Cummins ISX than any other engine application. And then the CAT C15. And then the Detroit 60 series. And then it, from there, it goes to like your, your Power Stroke 
Fords. That said, that was like 10,000 ISXs and 8,000 looks at the C15. So that stuff's really popular for us. So those applications are wet liner blocks. And you're referencing that from our Process Pro software. Yeah, yeah. F folks that have locked in and log logged in and looked at those specifications. So we can track and see what they're looking at. And that gives us kind of an idea of what's popular out there that, that our shops are working on. That was a little bit of a, I mean, we kind of think that, you know, hey, we've definitely know that the ISX and, and uh, the C15 are popular spec requests. But to see those numbers, that, that that's what's being clicked on and looked at. Yeah, I mean, it, that puts good, tangible numbers to what mm -hmm. we thought to be the case. But anyway, that said, that's kind of what we're talking about here today is these um, service type liners, you know, and many folks have heard of in frames and so forth. So these liners are a situation where you can yank those out and you buy a, a cylinder kit and you put them in a block. But a, a liner, a wet liner, is a serviceable component. You can go to many of our associate member suppliers out there, and they sell a kit. It may be a liner and O-rings, packing rings. It may be piston rings, cylinder liner, gaskets, whatever. So that gives the, the serviceability to be done while the thing's still in the truck, or it does go to a machine shop when they start to see other things that need to be addressed. The commonly used diesel engines uh, that may have these, quite honestly, are not limited to over-the-road truck. Uh, there's, a, there's a good number of gas engines that have these kind of liners, uh, industrial, and then LP, I mean, you go back to look at some of the Mazdas and, and so forth from many years back, but and it isn't just limited to, you know, the big over-the-road diesel stuff. And those types of sleeves normally, probably 99% of the time, have a counter bore in the block to accept that type of sleeve. Could become damaged at some point. So during inspection of removing that old sleeve, you really need to pay attention to that counter bore area to make sure that it doesn't have any defects or issues of installing that new sleeve and getting your sleeve protrusion to the right height. Right, right. Diesels have a big kaboom, right? <laughs> so there's a lot of head lift and, and the, the sleeves will vibrate up and down. So you can have micro welding and fretting and stuff in that counterbore area. You also have a, a good deal of oscillation in the bores from the major thrust axis transition. So you take a big heavy diesel piston and when it transitions, uh, Mala's got a good video of what sets up cavitation erosion. We did an article on that. So that transition, you know, you got a lot of piston clearance in those big ones. So bam, and you know, it's a hammering effect. So that causes the sleeve to want to slide you know, and be ejected out on that major thrust <laughs> axis. So that's also what sets up, again, the vibration in the cooling system. You have cavitation erosion, you get bubbles that implode and eat the cylinder. Some of those same things could eat up the, the area where the packing ring is and so forth, but you get a lot of movement. So you have to really consider the condition of the counter bore and the kind of like a pilot bore 
again, jargon. It's a bad thing. We, we struggle with that on tech calls because someone says that, you know, it's the spigot, it's the pilot bore, it's the, you got the upper bore area, the lower counter bore area. And then it gets more complicated when you have blocks that have the counter bore is in the middle of the mm-hmm. cylinder. And we think about typically a person would say a counter bore and they think from the gasket deck down three eighths of an inch or something plus or minus. So 375 thousandths, 250 thousandths, 400 thousandths. You don't think of it being four inches, 400 right. thousandths from the gasket deck. That's the counter bore, but that's, that's the, that's a fact. That's the matter of fact. So anyway, you have all of those areas. And then again, I've thrown out the word packing ring several times. So packing rings many times are in different material, right? You're going to have something that's going to be close to coolant that keeps coolant from leaking down into the crankcase. Then you have maybe a big wider band that helps stabilize that sleeve so you don't have that vibration and micro welding. And then you have to have some O-ring of sorts that's a material that stands up well to the oil so the oil doesn't migrate up or the coolant doesn't migrate down. So there's a lot going on in that crevice seal, packing seal area of the block. They still move. They still wear. They still cavitate and fret these things last these are million mile engines now so people service them and you know maybe at a million miles they just put a sleeve kit in it two million miles okay maybe i have to sleeve that area so jumping back to the earlier part of our conversation we were talking about the repair type sleeves we actually do those kind of repairs for blocks too so we'll bore out that lower crevice area drive in a cast iron repair sleeve and then machine it back to all of the dimensions that would allow us to put a wet liner in. And now we have a new wear surface for where the packing seals go. So it's pretty interesting. Quite honestly, that's with some of the funner things for me to work on in in my career, because I've worked on, you know, the performance block stuff and the straight through bores with the flanges on, but and looking down in that skeletonized area in a in an open area, you know, cooling block, and say, okay, how am I going to how am I going to fix this? How am I going to get in there to get to that to put these repairs in? Pretty fun stuff. Pretty, uh, you know, it's challenging. You know, I always like to look at stuff that was broken and can we fix right. that? So, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's that competition thing. I want to beat it. I want to make it work again. <clears throat> well, you had been mentioning O-rings and packing rings and, and all that stuff. And it's also important to say that most of them are color coded and they go in certain areas. So you need to make sure you get the right ring in the right location. Yeah. That's, that's one of the things that is a little bit of a challenge. Say if the aftermarket decides, Oh, I want them I want to make the colors different. Someone recognize it brand X or whatever. The published information from say Navistar says the top ring is green. The intermediate ring is black and the bottom ring is purple. And then they change those up. So, you know, if you're an aftermarket and you're listening, just uh, make sure that you put that stuff in there so we you can help people along or and share it with us. Because when we take that call, 
Well, you know, it's supposed to be, you know, green, black, and purple when I've got blue, red, and orange. Well, sorry, I may not be able to help you out very much. So, And I would say the majority of those companies have that in there. Uh, there is a kind of a document mm -hmm. that'll tell you what O-ring goes where. So, But like Chuck said, if anybody is listening from the aftermarket, please, please make sure that information's in there because it makes life a whole lot easier for everybody. Yeah, because when we've done a bulletin on it, we probably went with the OE yep. data. Correct. So, Correct. So, and yeah, so keep in mind, yeah, we do have bulletins on that kind of information. That's a, it's a good topic to have a bulletin on. Now you can correct that liner protrusion, like we stated earlier with, uh, machining that counterbore, uh, because there is a spec for that. Uh, they will give a dimension for how thick that, or what the depth of that counterbore should be. And we're, there are some companies out there that can do a little ring insert make for that counterbore to kind of get that sleeve protrusion to the correct, correct spec. Right. Right. Um, I'll use another like Packard. They actually, they have a different liner thickness that allow you to go do that. I know that there's been a push from some of the aftermarket, um, you know, users to, Hey, could we get a, a shim to fix this? So liner shims um, are probably the most straightforward way. Some blocks that are a very high value are even spray welded uh, to regain the block height. And when you do that to regain the block height, you, going back to the liner shims, okay, if I got the new block height, I got to get the liner up high enough that it has the protrusion so that it loads the fire ring or fire dam or whatever the application is going to call for. So you definitely have to shim those up. The only way to fix that floor is to cut it, go weld the deck back regain my deck height maybe it controls gear lash or something so a lot of things to consider there so yeah we get pretty creative when it comes to to salvaging those some of the features of the liners themselves and that's one of the things i wanted to talk about uh you know when when we're hdaw and i went and chatted with anthony at afa for a good little bit like Every liner, if you look under the flange, you typically see like an undercut area and you have to do things for stack up of tolerances, right? So if I'm going to cut a counter bore and I'm going to pile it off the pilot bore, I'm going to center from the pilot bore or spigot or whatever you want to call it. There's always tolerances. So you have some eccentricity or runouts. You can't have anything absolute zero. One of my old bosses used to say on the way to perfection, you may pass excellence because there's not really perfect, right? Everybody's got to have a tolerance. So anyway, so the liners themselves will have a undercut area under the flange. It does two things. It, it allows for some clearances so that you don't stack the that flange up and, and break it by clamp force. And it also, in some of the sleeves, they actually they press roll that like on a crankshaft where you have a press rolled radius and it densifies the material. So you induce stresses there for a particular purpose. So they may be a, a material that again, like ductile iron or whatever. So it acts more like steel and then they press roll that area and they add strength to it. So if you're looking for liners, you want to make sure that 
hey, this thing looks like what came out of it. So if it's got a big undercut area that's not a pressed radius, maybe there's a reason they had a pressed radius under because there's a lot of vibration and they crack right around that area. But there's typically some, some relief area so that you don't have misalignment stuff. Whether it's a performance application or a heavy-duty application, you'll also have a little bit of clearance around the top of the liner. You don't want to have press fit on on the pilot bore and then press fit on that flange. I'm probably not going to have those two holes exactly centered when I cut them and the sleeve is going to have a tolerance that it's probably not exactly centered. So if you have press fit in both areas, good possibility could potentially break the flange off the liner. So that's something to consider. The materials of liners, again, you're talking Usually they're going to be higher end materials, not a typical gray iron that's going to be 150 to 200 Brunel. They're going to be much higher. You're going to be talking 300 Brunel and up. So those liners are usually a material that they can harden. So you have full hard materials. You can have induction hardened materials. Uh, we've been talking about CBN honing for you know, more recently, but even back in the eighties, like Detroit diesel had induction hardened liners that they honed with CBN. Uh, Anthony and I were talking about that. You know, there's a lot of the stuff now that's hardened liners and it's, it is much more difficult if you decide you just want to hone it yourself. So, Hey, if I just want to glaze break and I have something that is so hard, like some of these modern, you're not going to change anything really. You might clean some dirt out of it, but you're not really going to do anything. So if it needs the surface finish addressed because you had oil consumption or something, you're going to have to either replace the liners or go to somewhere where they have the capability of breaking through that hardness. Some of the, the materials are, you know, they have a, a pretty decent case depth of, say, they might be hard to... 50 Rockwell, 60 thousands deep. So again, that might mean that you're going to be replacing that liner rather than trying to do anything with it. Cause you just can't, you can't get through that with a, maybe your conventional abrasive or whatever. And I think one of the, the last features that I would say that is it's become very common in, in the diesel world is the anti-polishing rings. It's kind of, they have a carbon scraper that they put in the top of the bore after the, the liner's inserted, and then there's another step for it, and it looks like a sleeve itself. So you slip that down into the, on the inside diameter of the cylinder liner, and when the piston comes to the top, it's kind of a squeegee, and it keeps the carbon from building up there, and when the piston's at, the, at its max height, you have the opportunity to get rid of all that stuff that, that builds up and it helps with emissions too. So dead airspace is always a bad thing. So it keeps the carbon from building up, tightens up that dead airspace, which is going to reduce the NOx emissions. And of course we know how that is, you know, that's always a, the conversation, reducing emissions, reducing emissions. So you can simply just kill some of that space around there. And we've known that from, the direct injected 
gas engine stuff. That's one of one of the things that held it up from hitting full production was was NOx emissions. So you know, quench area and and uh, trying to do away with dead airspace. Yeah, the nice thing about these this discussion on these sleeves and and liners and so on is they can be used in many different applications. I mean, you, you know, some kind of small cylinder bore up to a big bore. You know, it can be used to fix or repair any of those. Right on, Steve. So we keep talking about it, it's quite interesting how close with direct injected gas engines, how some of these heavy duty features that we've known a long time in the diesel world, like where you have the oil cooling groove in the ground, the nigh resist insert in the piston. Now with direct injected gas engines, you start seeing some of the thing, same things like the EcoBoost. I was looking at cross section of those pistons and so forth. Then the nigh resist insert in the piston got the it got the uh, the combustion chamber for the direct injection. It's got the salt core, and it's just it's really cool to see all this kind of coming together. And like the the three five, you know, it's got a flange liner uh, in the block. It's the materials, the two seven it's using compacted graphite, like from the diesel world. It's just, we're squeezing so many horsepower per cubic inch out of these things that these worlds are kind of melding. Now, when you say I'm not a gas guy, not a diesel guy, <laughs> those lines are getting pretty blurry <laughs> because the Correct. technologies yeah. are getting close together. So it's pretty neat, pretty neat time. We're all engine guys. <laughs> right. probably the best way to put it. Right, right. We were having a conversation the other night. We're talking about how in the past 10 years, it's just gone bonkers. You know, how many thousand horsepower, there's thousand horsepower stuff running around on the street. Mm -hmm. uh, when we were over visiting on that uh, that project on the JTEC blow-by meter here, uh, one of the Street Fighter engines, it's like something, you know, it looks totally stock, runs just fine, idles good and everything, you know, 1,500 foot-pounds of torque. It's just yeah, out of a 5.9. Crazy. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> Well, there are several um, aftermarket manufacturers that can make any sleeve to your dimension, your size, your length. So um, if anybody's got any questions on those, feel free to give us a call. We'll give you a list of those companies that do that stuff if you need something custom made. Uh, anything else you want to add on that, Chuck, about liners or anything that we, we didn't cover? No, I, I think that, you know, like Steve said, if you got anything, you know, real specific, give us a call. There's always some variation, right? So people have of course. different strategies for things, but, but by and large, you know, we kind of hit on the high points of, you know, what's similar about most all of these. There's a, there's always some slight variations. And, you know, look at Subarus where they got to have a hole. You can stick a piston through or piston pin through. You got two stroke stuff. There's always some variation. But, oh yeah. <laughs> but by and large, we try to touch on what's the, the common stuff out there and, and in our 14,200 engines we have in process, that's some of the challenges of getting that data loaded because there is so much variation, but that's what we're trying to do and, and educate folks about this along the way. Yeah, and if you got any questions on anything, really, uh, mainly the sleeve, since this is what this topic is about, why, 
you can drop us an email at eppodcast at aera.org. And, you know, we'll be happy to get back to you and answer any questions. Before we can do any of this machining and checking the sleeves and all that stuff, Chuck, our next episode is going to be on something that has to happen before all that, and that is cleaning. Cleaning is a topic, <laughs> that's for sure. The challenges of aluminum cleaning, uh, you know, it, it it varies based on what's available to you, you know, in your in your part of the country because different states have different rules. But yeah, it's a everybody's favorite favorite place to start in the industry. <laughs> right, right. And you got to yeah, you got to start there before you can get to the to the clean environment of the machining or assembly. But you need to for a newbie or whatever you need to start in that section to learn tearing things apart, cleaning them, doing the observation of why this engine came apart for one thing, which is topic for another discussion later. But to start in that cleaning department, that's where I started cleaning that stuff, making sure everything's good because it goes to the next department. They don't want to send it back. You know, they want it to be clean and ready to be machined. Right. And how do you make a good decision on what you need to do in a filthy pile anyway? It, it's an absolute necessary part of what you do. Yeah, you don't want to get your equipment dirty with dirty engine parts, but you have to have it clean enough to make good assessments. And so cleanliness next to godliness. I mean, so it, it doesn't change. It goes all the way through. You got to clean when you first tear down. You got to make sure it's clean enough to get in your machining area and you got to make sure it's clean enough to build. So it's important. It's important. <laughs> uh, which brings me to another point I want to talk about a little bit here is uh, we've had several calls and emails about our AERA regional conferences. Yes, we are going to have them this year. Uh, I'm working on getting everything finalized for that. Just waiting on a few of the hosts to get back to me. So hopefully Keep an eye out on our website at www.aera.org for those regional conference lists. The ones I'm talking to and are waiting for, it's going to be a good one. Uh, we're going to have a good year with some great conferences, a lot of exciting things, good presentations. So looking forward to that. Those are always good to go and, and visit our machine shops that we normally don't get to see. Yeah, for sure. That's It's a highlight of, you know, every schedule, in my opinion, it's like the opportunity to, to get some more education for ourselves too. You know, it goes both ways. We help to bring it and we learn from it. it, it it's a great, great program. Well, Chuck, anything else you want to talk about? I think we're kind of done here, ready to wrap it up. You know, I just, thanks to everybody that listens to us, that, that uses AERA services, that's a member it's quite a blessing. It's, you know, I, it, it's funny, honestly, that, uh, you know, at the shows and stuff, um, that, that people recognize and they point us out and they're like, Hey, the podcast guys <laughs> now. And, uh, you know, it, that's something that it was a little humbling to me. Oh, absolutely. That, absolutely. Without the membership, we would not have a job for one and B we would not be able to do all this, this fun and exciting stuff that we think is fun and exciting. So, which is giving back to our industry, uh, which is really ERA's whole goal is to educate our industry and, and give back information to them that can make them successful in the engine building industry. So 
it's our passion. Uh, that's just, that's how I would say it. It's, it's our passion, this industry, and we hope that everybody listening, that's your passion too. Yeah. There are plenty of folks that shared with me along the way, you know, I know we talk about, you know, Bill McKnight, he was always, he was a consummate teacher and, you know, and having conversations with him when he said, you know, it's your turn to pass stuff on, mm-hmm. you know, cause you can't, you can't hold it all in. Just, you got to share it. So you gain it and then you give it away. That's the fun thing about this. Unless you're the government, but that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, we're not going you down know, that path. <laughs> I'd have to edit that one. <laughs> uh, so if this is your first time listening to the podcast, we hope you enjoyed it. Please sign up. Um, you can do so at Engine Professional Podcast. Just search that on any of your favorite podcast listening services. And like we stated earlier, if you got any questions, comments, um, concerns, just feel free to drop Chuck and I an email at eppodcast at aera.org. Well, Chuck, I'm going to get back to uh, doing a little research on cleaning. So we're well prepared for that podcast and looking forward to it. Looking forward to it, Steve. Until next time. <laughs>